The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. Good to see you. This you too, Father. It's good to be back after our two-week hiatus while you had the opportunity to hang out with Francis in Rome. So, thank you. Thank you for Well, that. I, I uh, must say, though, I did not. Okay. Fair enough. Well, we took a number of our students over there to Rome on a pilgrimage. And uh, while we're there, we we're praying for all of you. Good. All folks back home. And uh, for the church. And... Um, Saw some wonderful things, you know. Um, went to the excavations, the Scavi under St. Peter's, to the tomb of St. Peter himself, and uh, to the patriarchal basilicas, and so many other things. So I think it was a good trip. Good. Just glad to be back. Mm -hmm. I actually had a, a wedding in Rome for which we were not allowed to use any of the churches, which is ironic because uh, about eight months ago, Francis uh, told one of his own priests that, in his estimation, the vast majority of their own marriages are invalid. So uh, it seems strange that they would not allow uh, any of the churches in Rome to be used for a valid marriage. <laughs> a marriage that would be certainly valid. Um, but in any case, uh, uh, the marriage did take place in any case. Thank goodness. So uh, we'll be praying for the... Uh, for the newly married, right? But they have a blessed, blessed married life. And um, I'd like to take the opportunity, while I'm thinking of it, Tom, to mention that we, we do have retreats from men and ladies coming up. Uh, June 13th, right here in the Cincinnati area, we have the retreat for the ladies beginning, and June 20th, we have the retreat for the gentlemen beginning. And uh, also we have the summer camp for youngsters, uh, the boys' camp begins uh, mid-July, and the girls' camp begins uh, about 10 days later. So if anybody's interested in any of these, uh, they should let us know. Right. We'll direct them where they need to go. Right. Okay. But we're, we're back uh, safely and, uh, and soundly, and we're very grateful to God for giving us the, uh, the travel to Rome to mm -hmm. see what the modernists have not yet destroyed. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, Father, I would like to start with a very nice email that we received from a viewer in Canada. And she writes in and says that I would like to thank you for your videos. They enlighten me to the truth of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the true Catholic church. They are an excellent teaching tool. You see, I only discovered in May of 2016 that there was something wrong with the Novus Ordo Church, which I later discovered is called this. So any information I can get my hands on greatly helps me to grow in my understanding of the true Catholic faith. I've left the Novus Ordo Church, and I am one of those who travels a great distance to receive the sacraments and attend Mass with uh, Father Martin Skierke. We are blessed that we are able to receive these sacraments and attend Holy Mass, and I thank God for this. And she mentions how uh, the great distance that she travels, she meets with her brother and they ride together. And she says, since we both began this, this discovery of the truth, we are able to share a lot of what we learn from what Catholics believe and e with each other. 
And in turn, we try to share this with our respective families, but to no avail. We don't have any of them wanting to attend Mass with us or even desire to learn more about what it means to be a Catholic, but I will not lose hope. My prayers and consecrating myself and my children to the Immaculate Heart of Mary is the most important thing I could ever do to help each of us with our conversion. I also say my daily rosary and entrust my children to our Blessed Mother. I also pray for what Catholics believe daily and Father Jenkins and Thomas and all those who work so hard to produce this wonderful program. I pray God will richly bless all of you. I thought that was very nice. Well, that is a beautiful letter. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. We appreciate the encouragement. Um, of course, the efforts are precisely for that. Mm -hmm. That that would be the that's that's our goal. That's our purpose. So to realize that it's being realized in the life of this dear lady. I very much appreciate knowing that, and very much appreciate and need the prayers. So please do continue. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and Father, God bless you for that. I thought uh, that we would be remiss if we didn't mention, since our last program, there was a lot of a lot of hay made about Francis's comments, where he um, apparently, in an interview, declared that there is no hell; that the mm -hmm. souls of the unjust upon their death will simply be annihilated. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, this. This was all over in the news. How the Pope declares that there's no hell. And the response from the Vatican and those who attempted to defend Francis was something along the lines of, there is no direct quote from this, this interviewer is known to give falsifications of interviews, but in my estimation, Father, it seems that even if that were the truth, that in a way, in a sense, this is even worse because of the great scandal that Francis has given by saying this. Even if he didn't say this, he hasn't come out to uh, to defend the truth and to clarify the truth, which is specifically his job, what should be his job description. So, uh, Father, do you have any comments on this on this matter? Francis saying that there's no hell. Well, in the first place, Tom, uh, Francis continues to meet with and give interviews to this Galafari, who's a notorious atheist, and. Um, he says he doesn't take notes on or record his interviews. But Francis continues to meet with him, even though um, uh, allegedly he has misrepresented Francis at various times. So the fact that Francis still continues to uh, go out of his way to meet with this man and speak with him, I think is very telling. But I think what is even more telling is this, that when, when Scalfari comes out with... Um, uh, a revelation like this about Francis's uh, non-Catholic and anti-Catholic teachings. Uh, it is never Francis who comes out and denies what he says. It is always some spokesperson in the Vatican, some nameless, faceless spokesperson. Even when there is a name, or there is a face attached to it, it is not the name or the face of Francis himself who comes out and sets the record straight and said, no, I didn't say that, no, I didn't mean that, he got it wrong. It's always somebody else who says it for Francis. Francis himself never makes the clarification or the retraction or the rebuttal. It's always somebody else. And you know what? That tells me that Scalfari got it right. Uh, that Francis has to have somebody else speak up for him and, and say, well, you know, this isn't a direct quote, and there are no notes, there are no recordings of this. Uh, um, so we, we can't take what this man says is reliable. Well, let Francis answer for himself. Uh, let him clarify that. That's what he's there for, right? That's what a real Catholic Pope is supposed to do. 
right? Mm -hmm. Clarify the faith and confirm the brethren in the faith. Francis uh, multiplies the scandal. And look, there's a reason why it is happening this way. Francis gives these interviews, says these outrageous things. Uh, A person like Scalfari comes out and then reveals them in due time. Um, And then others come sound in and say, uh, well, Francis didn't mean that. But Francis' whole purpose is to create confusion. Uh, One of the bishops even, even spoke up recently and said that Francis told him that with regard to to the apostolic exhortation uh, about uh, joy of love or whatever, uh, that we can't speak too clearly because if we speak too clearly, then it will make a mess. Now, Francis has already told the young people in the, quote, church, unquote, to make a mess, you know, and Francis has already done a very good job of making a mess. <clears throat> but here he, according to this bishop now, if we can trust what the bishop is saying, that Francis advised him not to speak too clearly about the matter of giving uh, the, their communion wafer to, uh, you know, divorced, remarried, living in adultery uh, people because uh, it'll create too much of a mess. So we have to let it go and let people interpret it for themselves. This is what modernists do. <clears throat> Francis is the quintessence of modernism. Um, and so uh, we, we certainly can expect that what the bishop is saying is true, that this is uh, Francis's modus operandi, this is his tactic, this is his strategy, to make such a mess of the faith that no one even knows or cares anymore. Um, <clears throat> it is becoming that way with the papacy. Francis is making the papacy a kind of running joke. He's making a mockery of the papacy so that no one is taking it seriously anymore. The conservatives even, the conservatives in the Novus Ordo, who are so determined to somehow spin whatever he says or is alleged to have said uh, in somehow, in some Catholic sense, or explain it away, minimize it or whatever, excuse it, they are the worst offenders in making a mockery of the papacy because they're insisting that that this is what has become of the magisterium of the Catholic Church. And, um, and unfortunately, as I say, that uh, this, is, this is not an accident. It is exactly what Francis is striving for. So uh, I'm, I'm convinced, that, of course, that Francis does not believe in hell. Uh, that he believes that the souls of the, uh, of the unjust are annihilated in the end. Um, in fact, he's already said this before. This was already re- reported before Scalfari even mentioned it. Right. This was reported way back in October of 19... Uh, of, I'm sorry, I'm not thinking <laughs> that far back, of 2017. So Scalvari made a point of it just, uh, you know, maybe a month ago. But it was already on the table back then. There just wasn't this great reaction. Why? I don't know. Now Scalvari comes out with it, and there's a great reaction about it. Uh, Precipitating the the response from the Vatican, but not from Francis. Um, Just recently, I understand, I just found out... that Francis was meeting in uh, the Church of St. Paul of the Cross in Rome, 
And he saw a little boy weeping, and he asked the little boy to come to him and ask what he was weeping about. And the little boy said that his father had just passed away, and his father was a, an atheist. <clears throat> his father wasn't baptized, <clears throat> but his father had his children baptized. And so the little boy was concerned about his father's whereabouts. And so I understand, this is what I'm told, uh, and I have reason to believe that it is true, that... Um, Francis told the little boy that his father's with God, meaning in heaven. That Francis even opened it up to the audience present there and said, well, what do you think? Is our God a merciful God? Would he abandon someone who had his children baptized? Even if he wasn't baptized and he, if he didn't believe in God, do you think God would still you know, let him into heaven? And I understand by popular accl acclamation, the man was canonized at that very moment by the people who all came out with the fact that, of course, God would take such a man to heaven. Now, um, if, uh, if this is the case, again, Francis is making complete mockery of the Catholic faith. And uh, he's inducing the people who follow him, his followers, to make a mockery of the Catholic faith too. He's making a mockery of the faith. He's making a mockery of the church. He's making a mockery of the papacy. He's making a mockery. He's making a mockery of Christ, who spoke of hell as an everlasting place of punishment uh, about, about 64 times in the course of the Gospels. Uh, so uh, Francis is making a mockery of, of everything, everything we believe in, everything we hope for, everything we love, our Catholic faith. Um, so... I'd say there's, there's no doubt that Francis not only doubts the existence of hell, but he out and out denies it. Mm -hmm. And Father, another interesting aspect of this is how this whole case, it manifests this pervasive misunderstanding of the office of the papacy, where, as, as if it were so simple as Francis declares, there's no hell, and all of a sudden there's no hell. Mm -hmm. If for perhaps his, his successor declares again, there is a hell, suddenly hell reappears. And I remember when, when Benedict was, was first elected, how there was, there was a lot of talk of, oh, he, he's a more liberal pope, do you think that he will approve uh, contraception and, and birth control? And, and the church will finally accept this as, as being morally acceptable. And I just remember thinking how, how silly this is. The pope can't decide truth and untruth. He can't, if the Pope declares oh, all of a sudden birth control is okay, it's acceptable. That doesn't change right and wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's just this... Th this well, there's a mentality coming that the, whoever happens to be, you know, living in the Vatican, wearing the right white habit, and uh, that he makes up the faith as he goes along. Uh, it, it reminds you almost of the, the time of the accession of Protestantism with the expression cuius regio eus religio, whose region of government, well, his religion should prevail there, right? So if you have a Protestant duke, then everybody in his duchy should be Protestant, right? If you have a Catholic over here uh, in this province, then everybody there, but they, they just would have to follow the Catholic religion. And so, But now we've got it so that whoever is elected or chosen as the Pope of the Novus Ordo gets to make up the religion uh, make it according to his own whim. And he's creating uh, God according to his own image and likeness. He's recreating Christ into it according to his own image and likeness. He's recreating the Catholic religion and faith according to his own, his own uh, notions of what he would like it to be. So what you're voicing there, Tom, is exactly, again, what modernism is all about. 
You know, and, and again, it is not the Catholic papacy. Francis does not even believe in the Catholic papacy. He's proven that. Um, because he seems to appear, he, he clearly sees the papacy as merely a soapbox for him to pronounce his own theories, as though they were matters of faith. His own lack of faith. Uh, what the modernists want to do is they want to simply um, uh, extract from the Catholic religion all of the Catholic faith. They want to, they want to uh, render the Catholic religion like a hollowed-out shell of itself by simply excising from it the Catholic faith and throwing it away. And Francis is doing a marvelous job of that. Yeah. Well, Father, we have an email that, that follows nicely with this. It's from a uh, self-identified, confused Catholic. And he says that, I agree with Father Jenkins that a Catholic cannot say that Francis is not the Pope. But I cannot see how he can be the Pope, considering his heretical statements that contradict traditional Catholic teaching and doctrines and pre-Vatican II popes, especially the doctrine of modernism, which Pius X clearly defined in Prescindi. Well, what this gentleman is saying here is exactly what Monsignor Marceau told me 70 years ago. Monsignor Marceau, God rest his soul, said, I'm not saying he's not the Pope, but I don't see how he can be the Pope. You know? So this is the dilemma that we're being, uh, we're being offered here. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there are those who um, are dogmatic city accountants who pretend they have the authority to pronounce definitively for everybody in the world on this subject, and um, they don't have that authority, okay? And there are those who insist there's really not a serious problem so that you would have no reason for doubting whether or not Francis really is a pope, uh, which I, I can't agree with them either. I, I mean, obviously, I mean, there is a serious problem, and yes, there is an objective reason for questioning whether he has the faith at all. In fact, I think it's very clear he doesn't have the faith. You know. um, but the, the, the problem is that both, of the, both sides of this, of this uh, equation, it's hardly an equation, it's a dichotomy here, are motivated by thinking that they have to defend the papacy. You know, I mean, those who, who hear people question that Francis is the Pope think that somehow they're attacking the papacy and they've got to defend the papacy. So if you, if you question whether Francis is the Pope, well, you're, you're questioning Christ, you're undermining the church, you're doing all this damage. But they don't realize that by insisting that Francis is the Pope, must be the Pope, must be the Pope, the whole Pope, but nothing but the Pope, and you can't question it, they're the ones who are undermining the papacy. Because they're saying a Pope can do these things and it doesn't matter, really, ultimately, in the end. Uh, it has no, cons no practical consequence of whether a, one is a pope or not. Well, that's not what the church taught. The church actually taught that a pope could lose the papacy. If he had it, he could lose it. And, uh, it, and here, there's even the question of whether Francis ever had the papacy or not. As I mentioned before, before one can become the pope, he has to make a formal act of accepting the office of the papacy, and that's accepting the responsibility of the papacy, but that means he has to understand what the papacy is. Francis has no concept of what the papacy is. What the papacy really is, the Catholic papacy, he rejects. And he has this entirely false modernist notion of the papacy, uh, which defines who he is. But that's not, that's not what the church, Catholic Church understands as a Catholic pope. Mm. Um, 
So, you know, there are, there are some very, very serious issues here. <clears throat> and rather than be uh, throwing uh, bricks at each other, these people should be sitting down and having some serious discussions with each other because they realize the church is in a state of crisis. And uh, they've got to try to understand better each other's position and understand where the flaws are and what's, uh, uh, where the pitfalls are. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever efforts I have made to uh, try to get people to sit down at the table and talk about these things, though, I don't know, it seems that people would much rather throw, throw bricks <laughs> than uh, uh, actually have some serious discussions about some very serious matters these days. Sure. Well, Father, this this same year he says that he was he was actually baptized into the uh, pre-Vatican II traditional church, and he wavered in and out of the Novus Ordo. But he has been listening to what Catholics believe now, and he believes that yourself and the Society of St. Pius V is professing the true Catholic faith before the disaster of Vatican II, but he says there's no chapels accessible for him in his area, and so he has been attending the... Uh, SSPX resistance, I believe, and he says how uh, some of the, these priests, they still recognize and pray in union with Francis in the Mass because they believe that it is not possible to have the Catholic faith by not rejecting Francis as the Pope, and that a person places himself outside the Church and is in schism, thereby he cannot be saved. He's, the priest says that if a person denies even one dogma of the Church, such as recognizing the Pope as the successor of St. Peter, that person cannot be a Catholic. He is separated from the church founded by Christ and is in danger of losing his soul. So this viewer seems to be very confused about what he should do. If he, he's following now this SSPX yeah. resistance, it seems that they um, still believe that Francis is the Pope. Well, he's exposed a, a flaw, a, a serious flaw in their thinking, as though it's a dogma of faith that Francis is a Pope. Not a dogma of faith. Um... As I say, there are some very serious problems with thinking that. But those those who actually are not convinced he is the Pope because they believe there are reasons why he's not, uh, reasons that the Church would consider to be considerable objective reasons that would disqualify a person from the papacy. Uh, you know, you've got the other side of the coin, and that is following a false Pope is also a matter of schism. Then what if, what, if the, what if they're following a false pope? Well, the problem here is there's so much confusion that you can't really accuse somebody of schism for thinking that Francis is a pope. As long as he's trying, that person is trying to follow the traditional Catholic faith, uh, if, he, if he has that idea, well, I think he is the pope because I see there are terrible consequences if he's not. Someone might be convinced of that. But I mean, you can't accuse someone of being schismatic unless he's following the schismatic religion. Um, but if he's trying to follow the traditional Catholic faith as best as he can, <coughs> even though uh, he believes Francis and personally has rejected the traditional Catholic faith, you know, I don't think you can accuse that person of being formally schismatic. But by the same token, if somebody is not convinced that Francis is, is a pope, but has serious uh, questions and doubts and reservations about it, or is even personally convinced that he's not the Pope. You can't expect that person to go against his conscience and and just uh, plead that Francis is the Pope anyway, in spite of the fact that he has serious reservations or doubts or even convictions that Francis can't be. Uh, That would be schismatic, to follow someone like that under those circumstances too. 
So the practical course of action is to, to follow the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety. Not uh, mezzo-mezzo, or not half-and-half, half, like following the, the fraternity of St. Peter, or any groups that are actually part of the, the, the Novus Ordo, trying to follow, practice the traditional Catholic religion within the Novus Ordo, is just fraught with contradiction. It's impossible to mix the Novus Ordo and the traditional without sacrilege. Um, so the, the, the practical result of this is that, and the practical solution and, uh, is that we just have to follow the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety. <clears throat> and when it comes to the question of, of Francis, um, again, uh, that, that is not something we have to answer in order to know what is the right thing to do right now. And that is always and everywhere to follow the traditional Catholic faith entirely and reject the Novus Ordo in its entirety. Mm -hmm. Father, you mentioned to you how, how some of these priests are using Francis's name in the canon of the Mass. And I know we've received some questions asking for clarification mm -hmm. in regards to yourself if you use Francis's name in the canon of the Mass. And if you don't, what do you, what do you say in its stead? I do not use Francis's name or the name of the local bishop. I never have. And I don't foresee ever doing it, quite <laughs> I foresee never doing it, obviously, uh, insofar as I see they are modernists and they represent modernism. Um, and uh, as I told Archbishop Lefebvre uh, one day when he asked me that very question, uh, he asked me why I, I did not do that. And I said, well, uh, I'm about to consecrate the body and blood of Christ at the altar to pronounce the words of consecration, to transubstantiate the bread and wine into the very living body and blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. And I'm asked to say that I'm one in faith with Francis. And I'm not. And I know I'm not. I know I'm not one in faith with Francis. And I cannot lie. I'm not going to tell a lie before God at a time like that. And uh, Monsignor Lefebvre, um, thought about that for a moment and then just moved on. He left that behind. Never brought it up to me again. Um, I think he understood it and I think he understood it uh, in a way that he, he personally actually had to agree with it. I think he agreed with that. Now that was before Francis, of course. This is going back before Francis. This is going back when John Paul II was involved. But John Paul II, although he's considered to be a great conservative relative to Francis, he did not represent the Catholic faith, okay? He said things and uh, did things that were very much inimical to the, to the Catholic faith. Um, so, um, and I think that equally applied to Francis, uh, as it, much as it applied to John Paul II, or even more so. So that's why I will not, I will not use that. Well, I mean, even beyond that, Francis would not want me to invoke his name there. So one could even plead, well, I'm being obedient to the, to Francis, who would not want me to invoke his name, who I, who Francis has denounced as a semi-Pelagian and neo-Gnostic, he wouldn't want, he doesn't want me offering that mass in the first place, so he certainly doesn't want his name invoked there. But uh, that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. The fact is, I can't lie and say that I am one in faith with him, period. Um... So I would say this, I would say that those priests 
of the resistance of the Society of St. Pius X, who actually invoke his name, and they say, they are unicum, uh, all the true and orthodox teachers of the Roman Catholic faith, including Francis, are lying. I would say they're lying right there. Uh, at the beginning of the canon of the Mass, moments before they consecrate, they're telling lies. If they're not lying, if they really are one in faith with Francis, then they should stop doing what they're doing, because what they're doing is a matter of personal preference, a matter of taste, not a matter of principle. If they are one in faith with Francis, they should be willing to say the liturgy that Francis says. They should be willing to accede to his uh, apostolic exhortations and follow them carefully, discerning Francis's will and Francis's intention. They should be looking to follow that closely. If they are one in faith with him, and they're honest about it, that's what they should be doing. But the fact that they're doing something in defiance of him, at the same time they're saying they're one in faith with him, and they cannot in conscience follow him, I would say that there has to be some falsehood there somewhere. Not implicit, but an explicit falsehood there. Mm -hmm. What do you say in lieu of using Francis's name and the bishop's name? I do what we would do during an interregnum in the papacy. Uh, the, the Church has provisions for this as to what a priest would say. If, if the Pope is unknown, uncertain, dead, and, we, and the, another Pope has not been elected, I mean, um, even before, before you know, even traditionally, if a Pope were to be elected and he were to accept the office of the papacy and there would be a valid Pope, there would in the past be times when it would take hours, days, perhaps even weeks for news to arrive that a new pope had been elected and who it was. And what the priests continued to do all during that time throughout the world because of the uncertainty of the situation was simply uh, say that the priest is one in faith with all true and orthodox teachers of the Roman Catholic faith. And that's what he would say. He wouldn't mention any names. And that's exactly what I say because that's exactly what my intention is to be uh, completely in communion with all those who truly teach the Roman Catholic, believe and teach the Roman Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Father, I remember on this program several years ago, you were talking about the same matter of how you're, you're not one in faith with Francis. Mm -hmm. And I remember you saying that you could not in good conscience give Holy Communion to Francis. And you said if Francis came to your church and not to receive Holy Communion, you would rather die than give the mm -hmm. Blessed Sacrament to Francis. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking how, how, how incredible it is to hear that. Just this, this just clearly defined truth, yeah. right there. And um, that's just so you it don't. Would be sacrilege would be blasphemous, and it would be scandalous. You don't get that any anywhere else, though. Other, it seems other other than than true true traditionalists. And I think yeah. that that is the uh, that's perhaps the one clarifying um, thing that 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 is, enables someone to distinguish between a tradition a true yeah. traditionalist and these kind of semi. Well, Tom, it amazes me. I, I mean, you're right. Uh, I'm sorry to say, you're right. But those who, who are in communion with Francis are in communion with Lutherans. Because Francis is in communion with Lutherans. <laughs> That's a good point. Right? Uh, they are in, in union with, uh, with Protestants in general, right? Uh, they are in communion with uh, actually um, non-Catholic sects that have been... Um, that have been dubbed false religions by the, by the Catholic Church for centuries and centuries. And, uh, you know, to, to have a traditional, to have a priest say, I'm a traditional priest, and I'm a communion with Francis, 
and to say, but I'm not in communion with, with Lutheran, Lutheranism. They're not facing reality. Yes, they are in communion with Lutheranism. Dichotomy. Uh, and I, I won't give communion to those who are living in open adultery. But Francis is allowing that and is winking at it and is encouraging it, actually. And his bishops are, in many places, openly doing that. And so, yes, they are. They're in communion with that. They're in communion with all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't, it's a contradiction. But you see, all of this goes to undermine the Catholic faith. What these traditional, so-called traditional priests are doing is undermining the true faith. They're enemies of the true faith. And they're, they're making a mockery of the papacy also by what they're doing. Well, Father, another question here concerning Francis. This, this viewer asks, if you could please discuss Francis's intent to implement an oath of loyalty and a new ecumenical mass, and how the oath against modernism of St. Pius X was usurped concerning church discipline and papal governance. Well, the oath against modernism was suppressed. It was instituted in 1910 by Pope St. Pius X, and it was completely suppressed, uh, ultimately, by... Paul VI, in the mid-1960s, Paul VI said it was no longer necessary. Of course, Paul VI had already violated the oath that he'd taken numerous times, actually. He must have taken that oath four or five times in the course of his his own clerical life. And all of those who went with the Novus Ordo had to do that. They had to violate that oath against modernism. So uh, uh, Paul VI simply suppressed it, did away with it entirely. Um, so it makes sense that Francis would require some kind of oath of lo- loyalty because he is a totalitarian, he's a despot, he's a tyrant, okay? All uh, progressive leftists uh, are tyrants at heart. They don't believe in uh, any liberty whatsoever. And uh, they insist that everyone has to agree with them. Uh, on, all, on all points. If they, if they don't, they're denounced as Neo-Pelagians and Neo-Gnostics, right? As Francis has repeatedly attacked uh, all traditional Catholics. Even in his, in his latest uh, apostolic exhortation, Exultatio or whatever it is, Gaudetia um, Exultatio, I'm sorry, uh, in which he goes off on this... Uh, this uh, discordant rhapsody uh, attacking uh, Neo-Pelagianism and Neo-Gnosticism. But he's already made clear that he considers the traditional Catholics to be that. Um, Whereas he himself is actually guilty of it. Again, something typical of modernism, that they uh, brand others with the very thing that they themselves are guilty of. Even when they're talking about this atheist gentleman uh, being saved and going to heaven, this is just echoing what Francis said before, that atheists who have good hearts can be saved. They mean well, right? And uh, this ruffled some feathers earlier on. Uh, the fact that he says it now, I don't know that anyone will bat an eye, because they hear it enough and they kind of get used to it after a while. And it just doesn't count anymore for them. A lot of people in the Nova Serba are at that point where they're just totally, totally checked out. And that is the faith. You know? uh, that 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 part of the, the, the those neurons have died long ago the matters of faith so um, but to, the, the idea that you know your good intentions are uh, 
the road to heaven is paved with good intentions. That's, that's Pelagianism. But that's what Francis is saying here. So he's actually the Pelagian among us, not those he wants to brand as Pelagians, the, the traditional Catholics. They certainly are not Pelagians, and they're not Gnostics. Mm-hmm. Um, and Francis also, I think, would qualify as a Gnostic because he seems to have, to have this sort of like this secret knowledge that he is now bringing to the church that the church never really knew before. Now he's, he's unveiling to the church realities and truths that the church was ignorant of before. And he has this secret gnosis, as it were, this Gnostic uh, insight that he's going to inject into the church and bring it into the 21st century. Uh, well, that's what modernism is. It is a kind of Gnosticism. So Francis is our modern reincarnation of Pelagius. And he is our modern Bardesanas and our modern Manichae. Um, he, he is our Gnostic of the day. Well, Father, I thought we could end with this last email that we've had for, for a couple months now. Uh, so I thought this was something important to discuss. Where he says, Father Jenkins brought up the issue of ordinations on a recent program. He cited sacramentum ordinis to state his case. It is ironic that those who deny the validity of the new rites of priestly ordination and Episcopal consecration cite this document to support their position. In fact, reading this document is what initially led me to investigate the issue and ultimately conclude that they are certainly valid. For at the close, uh, for at the close of paragraph 3, we find this declaration. Quote, if, at, if it was at one time necessary, even for validity, by the will and command of the Church, everyone knows that the Church has the power to change and abrogate what she herself has established. Pius XII was referring to the passing of the instruments here, but it manifestly applies to the new rites of holy orders. I find it disturbing that this is always omitted by those who are trying to question the validity of large swaths of priestly ordinations, and it is that deception that led me back to diocesan priests, something that I never wanted to do. I think you're missing a serious point here, and that is that uh, the Church does have power over the uh, form, okay? And yes, there are certain things that Christ has laid down that are very explicit. Other matters, uh, Christ himself has given the church authority to determine specifically uh, what is said. For example, if you look at uh, across the spectrum of the true Catholic traditional rites of baptism, you find that they don't all say exactly the same thing when it comes to the form of baptism. Some are imperative in a sense, some are indicative in a sense, some are a statement. Um, So, uh, you know, the church does have certain authority here, but the church in other, but the church cannot institute a form for any sacrament that is defective in what it signifies. Or a sacrament has to signify what it affects and affect what it signifies. And if there is a form that is being employed that uh, does not express the meaning of the sacrament, or actually expresses a thought contrary to the meaning of the sacrament, it would be invalid. The Church doesn't have the authority to contradict Christ in the meaning of the sacrament. Now, you take, for example, the statement in the, in the, um, the, the, the modern Mass, the new Mass, for the words of consecration, for the precious blood, that's supposed to be for the consecration of precious blood, where they um, 
have transformed the meaning of the mystery of faith from the presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament right then and there on the altar and the presence of the sacrifice of Calvary present on the altar uh, to the eschatological presence or return of Christ at the end of the world. Let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Is a very different mystery of faith <coughs> than that professed by the Church in their traditional consecration of the bread, of the, of the, of the wine, into the blood of Christ. That that is the mystery of faith, the very Eucharistic presence of Christ on the altar. Now, you know, there are those who argue that that is an attack on the meaning of the sacrament. But more so, I think more to the point is the, uh, the statement in the new words of consecration of the chalice, that this blood shall be shed for you and for all, for all men. That was deemed sexist, so they throw the more men out, and they leave for all. When the Council of Trent explicitly explains that um, Christ did not use or intend to say for all, because he was referring to those who would actually be saved. That is what Christ actually said. That's how it is related in the scriptures. That is how the Council of Trent explains it. And the new rite of uh, ordina- uh, consecration, uh, they don't even call it, they call it the narrative institution, uh, um, has uh, falsified those words. And there are those who claim that this uh, undermines the validity, calls into question even the validity of, the, of that. Um, so, the, the, uh, calls into uh, question the validity of the consecration of the chalice. So, the point that I'm making here is that if you have an, an, a change in the formula, which somehow undermines or attacks the actual meaning of the sacrament, then you have an invalid form. If you have a change in the formula that actually uh, uh, is dubious, right, is uh, ambiguous and so on, you already there have a serious problem. With regard to the rites of ordination, uh, what this gentleman says, and he says rightly, by the way, Papias XII does say that, um, but rather than be an endorsement of these new forms, again, I mean, that uh, calls into question what they've done, because you have to take, take what they've done, and you've got to examine them in light of the Catholic faith, and you've got to ask, what was behind these changes? What is the significance of these changes? And you see, their modernist concept of the priesthood corresponds to the changes they've made in the formulas. And their modernist concept of the priesthood is not the Catholic priesthood. So the changes that they've made in the forms have to be understood in the context of their theology. You can't just um, divorce or, or separate the changes they've made from their own explanations of the significance of the changes and their explanations, why have we made these changes? If they tell you that we've made these changes to give you an idea of the priesthood which is incorporating now the priesthood of the people more and more, and which uh, gets away from uh, clericalism and which, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
does a, does away with this 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 kind of magical sense of the priest uh, making sacraments happen, and you know all the other things they were saying back then, when they made the changes, and you try to take these changes out of the context in which they were made, and the explanation that was given for the motivation behind those changes, you're not facing reality. You're looking at something that is really divorced from, uh, from the, the, uh, the, the, that does not have the significance that the changers, the ones who made the changes, actually gave those changes in the beginning. And this is part of the problem that we have now. We have this entire generation that has grown up with the indult mass. They don't remember the time when there was the 20-year period when they were trying to completely eradicate entirely the traditional mass and, and, and not allow it anywhere. So that in the hopes that it would be entirely forgotten. Um, so I would suggest to this gentleman, look, if you want to understand the significance of the changes they made to the forms of these sacraments, you want to understand how they must be understood. Go back to the writings of those who actually were behind those changes. Go back to the writings of the modernists who precipitated those changes, who orchestrated those changes, and see how they interpreted them. And ask yourself, is, that, is their intention in making those changes is what they were trying to say by these changes, is that really the Catholic sense of what the true priesthood is? And I think you'd have to come to the conclusion that absolutely not, it was not. Um, as an example, just one minor example. Um, in the uh, new rite of ordination of the priesthood, okay, they've changed the form. Now, they've changed it, they've changed things back and forth a number of times, okay? So where they stand right now, I'd have to go and check where they stand right now. But I can tell you this, when the new rite of ordination first came out, they made a slight change, okay? A change so slight that you might say it's totally insignificant. <coughs> they changed uh, an, um, an accusative case to, a, uh, to an ablative case. The significance of it is very great, though, because we're asking the Holy Ghost here to actually insert into the, into the soul of a person, a character of the priesthood, and we're asking the Holy Ghost to give to that person the power of the priesthood, the power of offering sacrifice, the power of forgiving sins, and so on, okay? But the Catholic understanding, it, it is something that happens to the individual and even affects his very soul. It's not just something superficial. It's not just that he puts a collar on one day and that makes him a priest. He's not like a Protestant minister who just puts on a robe and shows up, you know, gives a sermon on Sundays, then goes off to his job running an elevator in some downtown uh, Manhattan office building. Um, he becomes a priest. Body and soul, <laughs> as it were, you know? And um, there's a world of difference between that and a Protestant minister. Protestants reject priesthood. They reject the idea of the priesthood. The priest is the representative of Christ, and the minister is the representative of the people. So when you take that and you say, now we're talking about the priesthood, the power of the priesthood, being not given into the person, but being put upon him, 
which is the significance of the difference, the change in case there in Latin. You're talking about something now that is something like he's vested with this. He's basically clothed in this. He's basically superficially applied to him. It doesn't actually go into him. And uh, this, the world difference here is the difference between a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister. Now, does one have to interpret it this way? One can argue back and forth, okay, the significance of this, you know, what, what does this really mean deep down? But when you look at the, 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 the arguments of those who made the change, then you find that that's exactly what they were intending, to give you that understanding of the priesthood, that you kind of put on, take off, you know, change shirts, whatever. Uh, they're really heading in the direction of a Protestant ministry. Uh, this is something that this gentleman is missing here. But something else he's missing, which is extremely important, is as Pope Leo XIII said, you have to understand even the formula itself, the essential form, in the context of the whole right. I mean, the context of the right determines the meaning of the words of the form. If you have the surrounding right and the prayers of the surrounding right, that describe something that is contrary to the Catholic priesthood, no matter what the formula is, you're vitiating that, vitiating that. Pope Leo XIII said that even about Anglican orders. That even if they used the traditional, traditional form, it wouldn't have the same meaning in the context of their, of their Anglican rite. Because their Anglican rite and the prayers surrounding it deny the existence of the real priesthood. So this gentleman can say what he wants, but uh, he's ignoring the fact that even if you had the traditional formula exactly as it was given by Saint pa by Pope Pius XII, and left that untouched, <coughs> in the context of the new rite of ordination, where you, you no longer have the words spoken by the bishop to the man, the candidate, touching the chalice and touching the pattern with the host, the bishop saying, receive the power to offer sacrifice for the living and the dead. Well, we know what that is. It's stated in the, in the offertory of the traditional Mass. When the priest is elevating the host, he says he's offering this oblation, this holy oblation for himself, for all those present, for all faithful Christians, living and dead. That's what he says in the offertory. At the ordination Mass, when he was ordained, he was told by the bishop, receive the power to offer sacrifice for the living and for the dead. The Novus Ordo took that out. It's gone. Have they stuck it back in at some time uh, without my knowing it? I don't know. But it wasn't there when they came out with the new rite. And the words of, of the bishop to the, to the uh, candidate, to be the priest, receive the power to forgive sins. Go on. They're not there. That absence is not a mere oversight. It was deliberately removed. So I'm sorry, this gentleman is on the wrong track. Uh, he's overlooking something very important. It is true the church does have a certain power, a certain power over the formula that is used in conferring the sacraments, uh, notably the sacrament of ordination of the priesthood. But if you have the modernists involved in making, that, in making those changes, and they change not only the formula, but they change all the surrounding prayers, eliminating the things that are specifically Catholic, and doing so deliberately with malice of forethought, well, that certainly does call into question the validity 
of the, of the ordinations. And um, it, that cannot be simply dismissed by saying, well, the church has the right to change this and the authority to change it, so mm -hmm. it doesn't count. Yeah. There's a lot more involved than this gentleman has really begun to th think about. But I encourage him to begin to think about it and really do, do more research. Go beyond where he is because he hasn't come to the conclusion. He just started sure. examining this question. Yeah. Well, Father, I think we could end with that. We've got gone through a lot tonight. I know you've got a busy schedule ahead of you, so I'd like to it seems thank you. Way, Tom. Thank but, you. Uh, thank you for being here. It's good to have you back. Well, thank you. It's good to be back, and I, I do thank God for all the graces we give. When we take our students over there, we go not as a class trip or vacation. It's actually a pilgrimage. So uh, whenever we enter any uh, holy site that the modernists, as I say, have not completely adulterated yet, we do go and we pray. We pray uh, in each place at least a decade of the rosary, the memorari, uh, for all of our loved ones back home and those in need of prayers. We pray for the church too. You know, um, we took our students to the top of the Victor Emmanuel Monument in Rome. And those who've been to Rome know exactly what the wedding cake is. Uh, sometimes they derisively call it the dentures and the typewriter, but uh, the wedding cake seems to have caught on. Actually, right in the heart of old Rome, the old city, there's this monument to masonry. And the, the masons actually succeeded in violently taking away the Pope's states, the papal states, the entire central of what is now Italy. They took it. These are all stolen sanctuaries here. And the idea was this, that if they could um, unify Italy under a Masonic government, they would take away the Pope's autonomy, make him a citizen, subject to laws uh, dictated by Masons, and if he violated their laws, they could imprison him. They could call him a criminal. Their idea was to make the uh, Pope actually a citizen of a Masonic state, and he would be subject to Masonic control. Well, the Pope fled to uh, the Vatican and became a prisoner of the Vatican. And finally, uh, the, the plot of Garibaldi in 1969 uh, was thwarted, you might say, in a, in a sense, by another bad guy, Mussolini, in 1929. When, due to his own political self-interest, he issued a, he entered a concordat recognizing Vatican City as an independent state. So the Pope still had a kingdom of his own, but it was much smaller, and uh, the the Italian state actually uh, paid the Pope uh, millions of lira, which were at that time worth something. Uh, to indemnify him, to, to pay him for what they had taken from the church. Okay? That's how Vatican City became what it is now. Okay? The papal kingdom governed by a papal authority as a separate state in the world. But the Masons had the intention of also uh, seizing the papacy itself. And they have succeeded in doing this in the person of Francis, for one and the Novus Ordo Popes, who have brought masonry, the edicts of masonry into the, into the uh, sad to say, into a captive church. But um, 
we have to uh, understand that the, the work of the church goes on. The sanctifying work of the church does continue through the work of the priesthood and the sacraments, the true sacraments. And they, can, they haven't been able to squelch that. As long as there are traditional priests in the world who will follow the traditional Catholic sacraments, and they are validly ordained, uh, the, work of, the sanctifying work of the Church can and does go on, in spite of a Francis, in spite of any one of these uh, modernists, in spite of modernism itself. So we have to be very grateful to God for that. The ultimate answer right now, therefore, for each soul is to adhere to the traditional Catholic faith. No one can ever criminalize that, not in the eyes of God. So uh, that's our mission. That's right. Thank you, Father. Well, done. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.